This morning I'm going to be speaking on the power of forgiveness, the power of forgiveness, and I'd like us to open in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the, for, for the power of your word, that it brings freedom, it brings light, it brings hope. It brings restoration, Lord God. It has that ability to penetrate deep into our hearts, to divide between heart and soul and spirit and bone and flesh. And we pray this morning for your word to penetrate deep in our lives, to penetrate deep in our hearts. Lord, we don't want to hear from man this morning. We want to hear from you, Holy Spirit. You're the spirit of truth. Come and teach us. Come and speak to us. Come and show us, Lord, where the areas in our lives that need to be readjusted. Come and show us where there's offense, where there's unforgiveness that you're wanting us to walk free from. We commit the rest of the service to you and we pray you would have your way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Um, my husband asked me a few weeks ago to speak on this and um, it's... It's not a normal message that I would like to tackle. I like to speak what's on my heart now for the church. And, um, and as I was going through this, I just realized that, Lord, the message that Paul gave me to speak to you guys about, I think it was just as much for me in the preparation as it will be for you. Um, you know, Lewis B. Smeedy said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. See, forgiveness is a key which Jesus holds out to us and we can take it and when we release forgiveness towards other people. M, should I use a handhold? It's fine. When we release forgiveness towards other people, it's like taking that key and unlocking the prison that we've put ourselves in. Unforgiveness, when I hold unforgiveness towards someone, whether they've done something on purpose, whether they did it unintentionally, whether it was um, something they said, whether it was something someone did to me, um, whatever happened, unforgiveness, no matter how justified we feel in holding that unforgiveness, it's a place, I'm sure you've heard this, it's a place where I drink poison and I hope that the other person dies right it's somewhere where say my mom or someone else does something to me and I get so hurt and I hold it against them and I'm angry with them and whose heart is it affecting my heart and it becomes a prison that I my heart is held in and even if we feel justified in doing it, somehow it affects my life, it affects my heart, it affects my spiritual walk. My heart closes up, my heart grows hard, and I'm the one who's affected. And the only way that I can walk free from that place is actually to forgive. And it's the most anti, it's illogical in our hearts, it doesn't make sense. Why should I forgive you? Why should I do this if you wronged me? Surely, surely I should wait for an apology. Surely I should wait for some indication from you that you're sorry before I can do anything. But that's not what Jesus teaches in the Gospels. That's not how Jesus shows us how to live our lives. And um, unforgiveness blinds, it blinds us to our own imprisoned status. We become spiritually blind when we hold unforgiveness. Forgiveness is a weapon of warfare. If I was to say to you guys, I want to give you a weapon today, you'll be all excited. Like, wow, okay, what is it? A spiritual weapon. If I say to you it's forgiveness, to forgive those who've wronged you, suddenly it's not as exciting anymore, right? because it's hard. But in the kingdom, things are often illogical. In order to keep, I have to give. I remember once God said to me, you have a gift of compassion, Trace. In order to give it, you're gonna have to, in order to keep it, you're gonna have to give it away. The Bible says that in order to be first, I must be last. In order to get, I have to give. So nothing really works in a logical way in the kingdom. And this is one of those things. Forgiveness is a weapon of warfare. It's a weapon we are to use over our own hearts and over our own lives. Failure to do so has multiple consequences, okay? And when I don't 
release forgiveness and when I hold unforgiveness, whether it's towards God, whether it's towards myself, whether it's towards other people, it has an impact on my life. It has an impact on my heart. It has an impact on my spiritual growth. It has an impact on my family and relationships around me. And God wants us to walk free this morning. So I just encourage you, you know, as I go through and I'm going to be teaching on forgiveness, um, to really listen, to remain engaged and to reflect on your life. You know, sometimes when we listen to a message, we sitting next to someone or we thinking of someone who needs to hear the message it's like yeah my mom needs to hear the message yeah my husband he needs to hear. my friend she really no well can I tell you something this message is for you this morning okay so as you sit there don't think about yeah I need this I need to give this message to this person or that person or that but think about it and say Lord I want to hear from you this morning because you're sitting here this morning God has brought you here for a purpose and maybe just maybe there's an area in your life where he wants you to release forgiveness because he wants you free amen Amen. So fasten your seatbelts this morning. I'm going to teach fairly fast. Okay, Isaiah 61 verse 1. I love this scripture. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Freedom for the captives. Jesus came and died and rose again and took authority over death and every type of captivity that the enemy would want to throw at us so that we could be free. And that's what the series is about, right? It's about walking in our freedom and Jesus wants us to walk free but it's not just he doesn't just wave a magical wand and say be free there are things that we need to do in order to walk in that freedom when the Israelites were in um, facing battles the Lord said to them I've given you this land but they still had to fight for it right the Lord says to us, you are healed. By my stripes, you are healed. But sometimes we get sick and we have to stand on his word by faith, right? So in order to fully walk in and um, have access to that freedom, we really need to fight for it. And this is one of the ways, this is one of the weapons that we need to use to fight for it. And often this type of fighting with forgiveness is actually against my own mind, my own heart. It's going against my natural, logical way of functioning by faith. It's by faith I forgive. Amen. So in order to walk in freedom, by faith I must forgive because I know that I need to forgive. Okay, so when I talk about forgiveness this morning, what comes to mind? Because definitions are important, right? If you're a lawyer, you know definitions are really important. Everything rise and fall in definitions. So what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness in your mind? What is forgiveness not? And as I was thinking about this, I thought, let me start with what is forgiveness not? What is forgiveness not? So Forgiveness is not saying that what you did was acceptable. It's not, if I forgive you, it doesn't mean that what you did was okay. Forgiveness is not saying I will trust you fully again. It's not saying that. It's not saying, okay, you did it once. Now God says I must forgive you and I must trust you fully again. You beat me up once. God says I must forgive you and just trust you fully again without putting boundaries in place to protect myself. It's not that, okay? Forgiveness is not saying that I condone your attitude, your action, your behaviors, and what you did. I don't condone it. I don't agree with it. I don't, it's not saying that it's okay for you to do that. Forgiveness is not, say, is not being a doormat. It's not saying, oh, okay, 70 times 7, I will forgive you. If you do that same thing to me, I'll just have to forgive you and be a doormat. It's not that. It's not being permissive, and forgiveness is not being weak. Some people think, if I just forgive you when you wrong me, I'm being weak, okay? It's not that. Listen to this quote. I don't know who, I don't know who said it. Um, I never knew how strong I was until I had to forgive someone who wasn't sorry and accept an apology I never received. I never knew how strong I was until I had to forgive someone who wasn't sorry and accept an apology I never received. Forgiveness is not about being weak and permissive and a doormat. Okay, so you might say to me, well, what is forgiveness? So I'm going to look at... The Greek, the meaning of the Greek word for forgiveness in the Bible, and whenever you look at the meanings of Greek words and Hebrew words in the Bible, you always have to have a scripture that you're looking at so that there's a context, right? So my context is Matthew 6, verse 12 to 15, and this is quite a key scripture in terms of forgiveness. Matthew 6, 12 to 15. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. 
Verse 14, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Okay, that's quite a powerful scripture right there about forgiveness. But I'm wanting to look at the meaning of that word forgive, the Greek word forgive that is used multiple times in that verse. So this is from the Thayer's Dictionary. And to forgive means to yield up, to expire, to disregard not to discuss, to omit, to neglect. So think of this in terms of someone has done wrong to you and this is what forgiveness actually means. It means to let go, to give up a debt, give up a debt. I like that. It means that when you did something to me, when you said something about me, when you wronged me, there's now a debt that you owe me. And me forgiving you doesn't mean that you no longer owe me a debt or that you never owed me a debt. What it means is that I'm canceling the debt that you owe me because I'm above what you just did. Amen. I'm canceling that debt. I'm letting it go. To forgive, to remit, to give up, to keep no longer. When I forgive you, it means I harbor it in my heart no longer. Sometimes, you know, we think about things over and over and over. But forgiveness is when I don't do that anymore because I've let it go. I give it up. To give up a thing to a person, to leave, to go away from one, to, in order to go to another place. And I like that as well because sometimes when we harbor unforgiveness, we get stuck. We get stuck in a place. We get stuck in a relationship. We get stuck in an attitude and we can't make progress. But here it says to leave, to go away from, in order to go to another place. That is what forgiveness is. It's about moving on. It's about saying, I'm not going to let that hinder me and tie me to this place because I want to move on and I want to be free. Okay, to depart from one and leave him to himself so that all mutual claims are abandoned. To leave one by not taking him as a companion. You know, sometimes we nurse our unforgiveness like it's a companion. We nurse it. It's a companion. And we have every right to hold unforgiveness because you did this or you said that and we harbor it and we hold it and we nurse it and we think about it and we meditate on it and it's our constant companion and it gives power to our anger and it gives power to us in some way. But forgiveness is leaving that behind. Okay, leaving that, not taking it as a companion. It's leaving destitute. When I forgive you, you no longer have power over me. When I hold unforgiveness toward you, you still have power over me. You have power over my heart attitude. You have power over my spiritual growth. You even have power over whether I will be defiled or not because bitterness defiles. Amen. Often if I hold unforgiveness, I end up becoming defiled. So by forgiving you, you no longer have power over me. And there's something called bitter root judgments. And often we see this in counseling where... Someone, maybe they grew up in a home and their father was a certain way and they made a judgment and they held unforgiveness toward their father. I'm just using that as an example. It could be anyone, any person. But say their father was beat them or verbally abused them or did something, cheated on their mom and they said, or was a certain way in their home and they made, they held unforgiveness. They made a judgment. My dad is like this. I will never be like that. A bitter root judgment. Unforgiveness. Never forgave their father. You know what often happens? They get bound to that sin. That sin has power over them. And whether they like it or not, they end up becoming like that because of that bitter root judgment. See, there's something in the spirit realm that unforgiveness does. It puts us in a prison and it opens a door to other kinds of evil. So we have to look at the situation through the eyes of the spirit and say, I don't want, first of all, to be locked in a prison called unforgiveness. Second of all, I don't want to open a door to other evil things that they have access to me. They follow me because I've got this bitter root judgment, because I've got this unforgiveness. Are you following me? Okay. So that was some of the Greek definitions. The English definition of forgive means to cancel or pardon. And I like that because it's not saying that you didn't do anything wrong. No, you did it. But I am choosing to cancel the debt that you owe me. I'm choosing to release because you might never apologize. If my forgiveness is dependent on your apology, you still have power over me. But if my forgiveness is because I choose to forgive because that's what God told me to do, you have no power over me. 
Forgive means to cancel or pardon. It is to absolve from liability to punishment for a crime or fault committed. So you committed it, but I'm choosing to absolve you. I love what the Amplified says. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven, left, remitted, and let go of the debts and given up resentment against our debtors. For if you forgive people their trespasses, their reckless and willful sins, because some people sin against you intentionally and recklessly and willfully, and some people it's un unintentional. For if you forgive people their trespasses, their reckless and willful sins, leaving them, letting them go, giving up resentment, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, their reckless and willful sins, letting them go, giving up resentment, neither will your Father forgive you. Okay, so looking at all of this, before we look more in depth at that scripture, I want us to look at what does God's forgiveness toward us look like? Because I can say to my children, guys, I want you to do this, or I want you to do that. Guys, I want you to eat vegetables. But if I just say them to, say, tell them to do that, but I don't do it, they'll look at me and they'll say, mom, why aren't you eating vegetables? You know, I said to my kids the other day, guys, um, have you had your devotions during, week, uh, during the week? It was they'd gone to school. We had a really busy morning and I knew they hadn't had their devotions. I said, guys, have you had your devotions? And Jaden turns around and says, have you had yours, mom? And I said, I'm going to have it when I get back from dropping you off. <laughs> okay, so kids like to see their parents doing. It's not about just tell me what to do. It's show me that you're doing it and then I will do it. So when we're talking about forgiveness, I think the first thing we need to look at is what is God's heart and how does he forgive? And what does his forgiveness look like? Amen. So I think it's important for us to note that God is forgiving by nature. He's forgiving by nature. He is love. He is inherently patient. He's long-suffering. He's kind, okay? Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7 and, uh, says, And the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed the Lord merciful. That word merciful in the Hebrew, it means compassionate, full of compassion. And gracious, long-suffering. That word long-suffering in the Hebrew, it means patient and slow to anger. I need to be more like God in these areas, I think. Anyway, abounding in goodness. Goodness there means kindness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So God is inherently good. He's loving, he's kind, he's merciful, he's compassionate, and that is his nature. So when he asks us to forgive, it's because that is who he is and that is how he is like. He wants us to represent him well. Now just when I was preparing to do this message, I just felt the Holy Spirit saying to me not to convey that he is, but who he is. It's important when we live our lives and we sharing Jesus, we want to share that God is real and this is what he's done. We're not only dogmatic and adamant that God is real and this is who he is, but we have to show people, uh, this is you know, what he says, we have to show people who he is. So God wants us to know who he is so that we can forgive because he is forgiving. Luke 6 verse 35 to 36 says, love your enemies. Oh, we can stop there and think about that for a bit. <laughs> love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how hard that is to be kind to the unthankful? It's hard. Therefore, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. His forgiveness is total and complete. His forgiveness is total and complete. He's essentially kind. He's essentially good. And I, I think some of us need to have a revelation of God the Father first before we even talk about this. Because when we have a revelation of who the Father is and how he's forgiven us, it becomes easier to extend mercy to others. Amen. I was listening to uh, something by Ravi and he was talking about love and the God kind of love which we're going to look at a bit just now and that when I love you and you don't love me in return I get hurt because I've lost something amen when God loves us and we don't love him in return he gets hurt because we've lost something 
So God's kind of love is just different to our kind of love. And I think especially as Christians, we need to step more into the God kind of love in order to operate in forgiveness. When God forgives us, he remembers our sin no more. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 says, he remembers our sins no more. So yes, God is all knowing, but he actually chooses to forget our sins. We're the ones who struggle. We're the ones, I think, who remind him, Lord, eesh, you know, I did that and we ask him to forgive us again. And he's probably saying, guys, I forgave you last week and I actually chose to forget that and now you've just reminded me. So God actually forgets our sins. He removes our sins as far from him as the east is from the west. Psalm 103 verse 12. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7 verse 18, 20. That's never to be retrieved again. So when God forgives us, his forgiveness is total and he forgets. Okay, and he forgets. So some of us, I think we we, we live under this, whether it's a... um, conscious belief or an unconscious belief when that we think that when God forgives us he forgives us temporarily temporarily suspending judgment until another point when he'll hold it against us because I think that's how we forgive but God is not like us you know someone once said that God made man in his image and man repaid him the compliment we make God in our mind like we are but God is not like us God is different. When he forgives, he forgets, okay? The nature of God's forgiveness is reflected in the presidential pardon. Now, if you look at the presidential pardon, this is in the States, in the United States, it must be exercised by one who has the power to pardon. No one else can overturn it, okay? The crime for which the pardon was granted is completely erased from police records. In fact, if you had to sign, um, uh, if you had to sign up for a job, when it says they have you cor- committed any crime legally, you can say no if you've been pardoned by the president, if you've received a presidential pardon. So that is a picture of God's forgiveness to us. It's total. It's complete. He's removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He's forgotten about them. That is how God forgives us. And we need to come to a place where we completely understand that. There's a story told um, of a guy called George Wilson. And in, in 1829, he was sentenced to be hanged for robbing. And the president pardoned him. But Wilson refused to accept the pardon. So the Supreme Court was called upon to decide the matter. And the Chief Justice John Marshall gave the following decision. A presidential pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. It is hardly supposed that one under sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon. But if it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. What is all that to say? Is that God gives us these, his forgiveness is total and complete and we have to receive it as such. We have to receive it in order to experience the fullness of his forgiveness and also I think somehow in order to allow other people to be released fully from ourselves. Amen. Okay, so we've covered that God's forgiveness is total. God's forgiveness is complete. So what are the, what are the conditions that I can receive this amazing Forgiveness. Well, the first one is we must release forgiveness toward those who have wronged us. We've looked at the scripture before. Matthew 6, 14 to 15, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you. I think some of us could spend a bit of time meditating on that. There's other scriptures in the notes. If you go to the the website afterwards, there are a whole lot of other scriptures there. But we need to release forgiveness in order to experience that amazing forgiveness that I just described. Amen. And sometimes it's hard, but when we look at ourselves and we look at our lives and we realize the debts that we owe God, it becomes easier to say, okay, you know, I think what she did or what he did I could just as well as done, have done as well. Let me release forgiveness because God, because God has forgiven me of something greater than that. So what are the conditions? Number one, I must forgive. And you might say to me, well, how many times must I forgive? Well, Matthew 18, verse 21 to 22, Jesus says, well, Peter says to Jesus, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. I mean, my kids sometimes like, mom, Samuel did it again. The second time, I'm like, yeah. You have to forgive him. 
70 times 7, okay? We have to forgive. How many times Jesus says 70 times 7? And, and by the way, if we're forgiving the way that Jesus says we to forgive, we won't even be counting because the first time we forgive, we've forgiven it and we stop counting. We stop counting. <laughs> so 70 times 7, 7 is the number of completion. It's, it's, you, you can't stop forgiving. We have to continually forgive. Then you might say to me, well, surely the culprit should ask for forgiveness first. Surely they must at least acknowledge their wrongdoing. Some of us, it's nice if people do that, right? It's nice if people acknowledge. I'm sorry that I, my husband, or me even, or, you know, I'm sorry that I X, Y, and Z. Well, Jesus says in Matthew 11, 25, 20 to 26, whenever you stand praying, if, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. When you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Okay, so if someone has wronged you, you forgive him. He doesn't say here, when they ask you for forgiveness, then you can forgive them. He just says, forgive them. So Jesus says, they don't have to ask for forgiveness first. Okay, and he demonstrated this on the cross, which I'm going to look at a bit later. So, So those are the conditions to receiving forgiveness. I'm just trying to watch the time and make sure I cover the most important things this morning. So what are the conditions that you must receive forgiveness? Number one, you have to forgive. What is the second one? How many times must you forgive? As many times. Do they have to ask for forgiveness first? No, okay? Now how do you receive forgiveness? The first thing is Psalm 86 verse five says, I must call upon the Lord. I must call upon the Lord. The Lord is abundant in mercy to all who call upon him. Even though we have offended or sinned against others, we have first and foremost sinned against God. So I must call upon God. I must acknowledge my sin before him. 1 John 1, 9 says that I must confess my wrongdoing. Acts 8 verse 22, I must repent of my sin. Repent is just a big word for saying that I turn and I walk in the other direction. Okay? Proverbs 28, I must forsake my sin and I must be willing to forgive others. So how do I... How do I access this forgiveness? I come before God, Lord, you know what? I shouted at my kids. So yes, I know I wronged them, but Lord, against you have I sinned. Lord, I was supposed to. I'm supposed to carry the father heart of God. I'm supposed to reflect you to my kids. And I sinned against you first by shouting at them. I'm coming before God. I'm asking for his mercy. I'm confessing what I did. Lord, this morning I choose to turn in the opposite direction. Lord, I pray that you would say to God at my mouth that you would help me to not do it again. That you would fill my heart and mind and mouth with your love for them. Lord, I turn from the sin and I walk in the other direction. Would you cleanse me? Would you forgive me? Boom. Okay, there we go. Now, I'm not saying that, as I've heard some, some people say, we have to sit down at night and confess every single sin and navel gaze that we ever think we could have possibly committed today. Lord, if I lied, Lord, if I did this, Lord, if I did that. No, it's not about that. It's when we convicted, you know, you have that conviction in your heart where you know you did something not quite right. It's that, it's following that, it's following the Holy Spirit. When your conscience is pricked, then you receive forgiveness, okay? Now, the second thing in terms of receiving forgiveness, because you've prayed those prayers and you've acknowledged and you've confessed and all of that, now I must actually receive the forgiveness in my heart. I must receive it. Uh, Jesus speaking to Paul on uh, Saul on the road to Damascus, and he says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness for our sins must be received because I can pray that prayer and I can say, Lord, I turn from it, said a God at my mouth. And then I can think about it all day and hold it against myself. I haven't forgiven myself. I'm walking in condemnation and I haven't received the forgiveness that God is wanting to give to me. Amen. Okay, so I've got this gift because I wanted to show it as a demo. Can I have someone as God? Jimmy, you look like a big, strong God. <laughs> okay, so Jimmy is God. There we go. You can come stand up here. Okay, and he is holding that gift of forgiveness. So now I have shouted at my kids this morning and I spoke harshly to them and he's holding out forgiveness to me. Can you all see this side? 
He's holding out forgiveness to me. I'm, thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. Thank you, but you know, I'm just, how did I do that? I, why did I do that? I thank you that you've forgiven me, Lord, but why? Why did I do that? Why, you know, and I, and I, it's like that until I reach out and I say, thank you, I receive your forgiveness. And then I, thanks, Jimmy, he's a great God. <laughs> he's a great God. Okay. So it's like that I have to also, when I receive forgiveness, I have to think and meditate on the goodness of God, that he's actually forgotten about that and he's let it go. And then I too must forgive myself, amen? I must forgive myself. I must receive that forgiveness. Accepting our forgiveness has to do with forgiving ourselves. So the completeness of receiving God's forgiveness, that completeness, the process is completed when I receive forgiveness and I forgive myself. If I don't accept his forgiveness for myself and forgive myself, I'll stay in that prison and we'll stay in the situation where Jimmy's standing here as God holding out forgiveness and I'm looking at it and I'm meditating on it and I'm walking away from it and I'm not accepting it and appropriating it for myself. Now, forgiving myself is just as important as forgiving other people. It's just as important. And I love what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected. Guys, you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. And we never will be while we're on this earth. And we will always sin and we will always need forgiveness and we will always need to forgive others and we will always need to forgive ourselves. And Paul says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, hallelujah, it's okay to not be perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He already knew when he took hold of me, my sins, my errors, my shortfallings, he already knew that and he already made a way to forgive me for everything that I was going to do and I need to get over myself and forgive myself because I'm really not all that, that I think that I wouldn't do all of this stuff that God already knew that I would do. Are you following me? <laughs> okay. A bit fast. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And God wants us to do that. He's forgiven us of some of those things. He's moved on and we the ones who's still pulling them because we think we know better than God. He's forgiven us. He's let us. He said, it's time to move on, guys. And we still got the no because we, wow, because we think we know better. We're pulling those things. We're pulling weights. We think we deserve to pull those weights as some form of punishment. But God has already wants to remove all that punishment from us. Paul says, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if any, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this even to you. So we have to forget, we have to learn to forgive, to forget and to move on. Okay, forgetting is not a normal human ability. Okay, the New Testament for the word neglect, uh, to forget is to neglect or no longer care for. Some things that we've done, we still think about, we still care full about, we care full, we're full of cares around something we did way back when. We wish we hadn't done it and God has forgiven us and he's saying, let it go, press forward for the upward call of Christ Jesus, amen. Forgetting means that we no longer nurture certain things in our mind. You might say to me, yes, I've forgiven myself. I've forgiven myself, but you think about it 24-7. How could I do that? Why did I do that? I did it again. No, press on for the, the call of Christ, in, uh, the call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. There are certain things that we are to disregard and no longer care for in our mind. There are certain things we are not to let dominate our thinking. There are certain things upon which we are not to fix our attention or our gaze. What are you looking at? Ties into a message that I preached in Cape Town. What are you listening to? What voices are you listening to? What voices are predominantly between these two ears? Whose voice is dominant in your mind? What are you looking at? What are you fixing your attention on? What are you allowing to, your eyes to fall on all the time? 
Okay, what are you staring at? There are certain things that we are not to cultivate. We are not to water them. We are not to feed them. There are certain things that we must let starve. And a lot of this is in our thoughts life and it requires discipline, forgetting the things which are behind and looking forward to where God has called us. I love Philippians 4 verse 8. It says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, pure, lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You know, sometimes I think we are our own worst critics because we think about all our faults, everything we did wrong, and that's what we meditate on. Oh, I did this, and I did this, and I did that, and why did I do that, and this, and I wish that this, this. And the Bible says no. It says, whatever things are noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, even about yourself, I give you permission when you're thinking about yourself, think about praiseworthy things, virtuous things, lovely things. Press on, press on to the, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. So what are the consequences of not forgiving? Now, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about forgiveness towards God because sometimes we can hold unforgiveness toward God. I'm talking about forgiveness toward ourselves because as we've just looked at, we can hold unforgiveness toward ourselves and also unforgiveness toward other people. What are the consequences of not forgiving? Well, Jesus says, Mark 11 verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So our prayers will be hindered and we won't receive forgiveness if we don't forgive. If I come to prayer and I'm harboring unforgiveness, my prayer is hindered because I'm holding unforgiveness. The second thing is our gifts and ministries will be rendered ineffective. Matthew 5 verse 23 to 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go your way, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your ministry to the Lord. So our gifts and ministries, there's, a, there's a, a level of ineffectiveness that we move into when we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts. The third one is the obvious one that you are all aware of, I've mentioned it, is that God will withdraw his forgiveness. Matthew 18, 35. So my heavenly father will also do to you from his heart if we, you do not forgive your brother his trespasses. So we don't receive forgiveness from God. And number four, we will personally suffer and dwell in a prison house of our own making if we don't forgive others. That's what I started off by saying. Forgiveness is a weapon of war. It's a, it's a key that unlocks not someone else's prison, but my own prison. And the parable that Jesus tells that illustrates this very well is from Matthew 18, 20, uh, 21 to 35. Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And uh, seven times, and Jesus says, no, seven, uh, uh, seven, um, 70 times seven. And then Jesus goes on and he says, the kingdom of heaven can be, can be compared to a king who wanted to bring his accounts up to date. And there was a particular debtor who owed him millions of dollars and he couldn't pay it. And this king ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owns to pay back the debt. But the man fell down, verse 26, the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. Now that guy left the king, went to find a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell down before him and begged for more time. Be patient with me, he pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. So some of the servants uh, know, see that this is happening and they go to the king and they tell him and the king says, verse 32, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the, sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. And Jesus says, verse 35, that is what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Very powerful. The king there obviously represents God. And the man who owes millions of dollars represents you and I. And we need forgiveness from God for what we've done. And we don't like to offer forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. And when we don't do that, we end up putting ourselves in a prison of our own making. Amen. Okay. There's no way that we could ever repay God the debt we owe him. And his forgiveness is totally undeserved. 
And what others owe us, really in the grand scheme of things, is actually insignificant in comparison to what we owe God, okay? So God doesn't like it when we don't offer his generosity to others, when he's been even more generous to ourselves. And the final fruit that I'm wanting to look at in terms of holding unforgiveness is the fruit of bitterness, which I think, which I think is more um, prevalent than we realize. Hebrews 12 verse 14 to 15 says, pursue, people, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. See, when we hold and harbor unforgiveness for a long time, what ends up happening is that bitterness and offense sink in and set into our hearts and we become defiled and they've actually found medically they found that people who harbor unforgiveness and are bitter some a lot of them uh, end up getting arthritis they suffer from medical conditions like um, high blood pressure high cholesterol um, anger increased heart rate high instance of uh, substance of uh, substance abuse anxiety depression etc so medically some of these things work themselves out and even in praying when you when you hear about people praying for people to be healed often when people just release forgiveness the healing comes without saying by your stripes lord jesus and releasing any prayer of faith or prayer of agreement literally the person just has to release forgiveness and suddenly a lot of their illnesses go away Okay, so forgiveness is powerful. Bitterness is deep-rooted uh, deep and it really defiles. The Holy Spirit spoke this to me yesterday when I was preparing. He said, there's a lot of unforgiveness harbored within the context of marriages, work, and even towards the church. When I say church, I'm meaning leaders, members, and the church as a body, okay? He said, I want to bring freedom to my people, freedom to see aright. Where there is unforgiveness, bitterness, and offense, there is spiritual blindness. The unforgiveness opens a door, just as forgiveness unlocks the prison door. Unforgiveness locks that door and opens another door for evil. Unforgiveness is a place of pride and self-righteousness. If it is not dealt with, it becomes a spiritually barren place, devoid of life. You see, so we have to release forgiveness for our own good. It doesn't matter about the other person, whether they've apologized or not. We need to do it for our own good. Now, I was listening to, if you, any of you like listening to John Bevere, I was listening to his uh, book, um, The Bait of Satan, outstanding book, if you can get your hands on it. And he shared this, and I'm going to share it with you. Um, Matthew 24, verse 10 to 13, it says, Many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. You know, as a pastor, as a pastor's wife, I understand this, that when lawlessness abounds, the lo lo your love can grow cold. When people wrong you, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, it's very easy to take offense, to say, well, I pour out my life and, and this is how you treat me, this is what you say. And my love can grow cold, I understand that. And it can happen to you. You can say, well, there's this happening, this happening, this happening, this person did this, your love can grow cold. And you might even look at that and say, well, is that even talking about the love of believers? Because it doesn't even sound like the church there. Um, lawlessness and love of many growing cold. Well, that love that was used there, that word love is actually the word agape. And in the New Testament, there are different Greek words used for love. And in our English language, we have one word love, but in Greek, there are four. And the two that are used the most is agape, which is the God kind of love, which is unconditional, which means I love you regardless of what you do back to me. I love you regardless of anything. I just choose to love you. So it's based on choice. And actually we need God in order to love people like that. The second kind of love is philos or phileo, which is a friendship kind of love, which, are, which is a love by chance. I happen to click with you. I happen to love you. And, and I love you because you love me back. 
back and we get on, you know. If you don't love me, well, I'll go my separate way. It's fine. No loss to me. That's phileo. So the love here is agape. So it must be talking about Christians. In Christian circles, in churches, the love of many will grow cold. Now in Romans, 8, uh, Romans 5, it says... We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God, that love there is agape. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That love is the love of God. Now, my love, I need the Holy Spirit to pour out His love in my heart that I can love you and by the way, this applies to you as well, that I can love you with that unconditional type of love because I need that love and actual facts to continually offer forgiveness towards you when you wrong me. It makes it easier. It makes it easier. Agape love denotes an undefeatable benevolence and unconquerable goodwill that always seeks the highest good of the other person no matter what he does. I can't do that on my own. I need God to do that. I need Romans, uh, this God kind of love that the Holy Spirit sheds, pours out in my heart from Romans 5, okay? Agape is the self-giving love that gives freely without asking anything in return and does not consider the worth of its object. When I read that, I thought of Mother Teresa. That must have been agape love. She poured out and poured out to the lowest of the low the outcast of society. Agape is more a love by choice than philos or phileo love, which is a love by chance. And it refers to the will rather than the emotion. So when I love you with an agape kind of love, I'm choosing to love you and it's not based on my emotions. I might not have any emotions attached. And when I love you with an agape kind of love and when I'm trusting God to put that in me for you, I can forgive you and I don't have to have the emotions. I can forgive you and you don't have to apologize to, to me. I can forgive you and you don't even have to be remorseful. Amen. Agape loves regardless of the response. And you know what? When I look at Jesus on the cross, this is the kind of love that I see in him. Because if you think about Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus. One of his very own disciples, you might say, but I can't forgive this person. They betrayed me. My husband, my wife, my closest friend, they betrayed me. Well, Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Peter was one of Jesus' closest, you know, disciples. All of his closest friends abandoned him when he was at the cross. And only John followed, but even John followed at a distance. So Jesus, with all of this, Jesus forgave them all. He forgave them all. From his friends who deserted him to the Roman God who crucified him. Jesus forgave them all, and he is our model. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They may not have recognized their wrongdoing, but he gave it anyway. And I think that he could do this because he had agape inside of him. Amen. Romans 5 verse 8, But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How many of you would do that? No guarantees that the people are going to love you back. No guarantees that they're going to accept what you did. Nothing. And he still did it. And that's how he wants us to forgive. Even if there are no guarantees that that person is ever going to recognize what they did wrong to you. No guarantees they're ever going to apologize. No guarantees that they're not going to do it again. But he says, you know what? Forgive as I forgave you. Amen. Truth be told, often when we are wronged, we, justif we, we are justified. It was wrong. It was wrong. But that, in the kingdom of God, that's not a reason to harbor unforgiveness. We can recognize that what they did was wrong, but then we have to say, you know what, Lord, I know that I've wronged you, and I receive your forgiveness. And in the same way that you forgave me, I forgive them. Amen. Right. I think I might have time to look at one more. Okay, let me just finish this and then I'll see if I have time. So what does it mean to extend forgiveness? How do you know if you've really extended forgiveness? Okay, it means number one, we express it in words. If you can't express it in words, then you haven't forgiven. Okay, it means that I refuse to bring it up with the offending party again. 
I refuse to bring it up. Number three, it means that I treat the offending party as if it never happened. I can't use it as a weapon in our next fight. I can't use it as a tool of manipulation, ladies, in marriage. I can't use it. I can't store it in my arsenal and bring it out. You know, no. When I forgive it, I put it away and I don't bring it up. Doesn't mean that I don't protect myself in terms of if I need, if I'm being beaten up. You know, I have to be wise and not put myself in that situation. But I forgive completely. I, I treat the offending party as if it never happened. I don't use it as a tool of manipulation. It means that I refuse to talk to other people about it. Because if I'm still gossiping and talking to other people about it, it means that it's still in my heart. It's still in my mind. It means that I haven't forgiven. It means that I refuse to dwell on the offense in my mind. I don't think about it 24-7. I'm not thinking about it all the time. And if I have forgiven and it comes, then maybe I just need to discipline myself to say, you know what, I've forgiven and, and take that, that thought captive. I've forgiven. Or if you need to forgive again, forgive again. Just do it again as an act of discipline. I'm going to forgive again because I'm forgiving and I've forgiven you. Amen. Okay. So that is what it looks like. And what are the results of forgiveness? When forgiveness is granted and received, it brings forth wonderful results. These include Acts 13, justification. What does justification mean? It means just as if I didn't do it, or just as if you didn't do it. Justification. In other words, we justified before God and man, we can go forward as if nothing happened. That's the first thing. The second thing is a clearing of the conscience. A clearing of the conscience. So if I have done something wrong and I've received forgiveness from God, my conscience will be clear. I've confessed it, I've turned from it, I've received that gift. If my conscience is not clear, I probably haven't received the forgiveness. Joy, instead of bitterness, there can be joy. Psalm 51 verse 12, Acts 3 verse 19, restoration, restoration of relationship with God, restoration of relationship with others. And Luke 7, um, there's a whole parable there, but basically it talks about the love of our love for God will grow greater. You know, there's that parable where Jesus, or it's not actually a parable, it actually happened. One of the Pharisees invites Jesus to have dinner with him, and that Pharisee is Simon, and there's a woman who's an, a, a prostitute who comes, and she anoints Jesus' feet with oil, and um, Simon, the Pharisee, is watching this and, and says in his heart, he says, oh, if Jesus knew what type of woman this woman was, he wouldn't allow her to do that. And, and um, then Jesus shares the parable, and he says... Simon, um, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver, 50 pieces of silver. Neither of them could repay him, so he forgave both. Forgave both. Who do you suppose loved him more? And then Simon says, rightly, the guy who was forgiven more. And Jesus says, correct. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, this woman will love a lot because she's been forgiven a lot. When we realize how much God has forgiven us, our love for him gets bigger. Our love for him gets more. And hopefully our love for others also gets more. Amen. So there's no sin so gross nor so often repeated that it cannot be forgiven. Jesus' admonition to forgive 70 times 7, that is how God forgives us. That is how God forgives us. God's forgiveness extends to abortion, divorce, homosexuality, adultery, fornication, stealing, child abuse, failure in business, failure in parenting, failure in ministry. It extends over all of these things. I think in our minds sometimes as Christians, as Christians, we kind of like put sins on a pedestal and on some type of graph or on some type of line. This one is almost like an unforgivable one and this one is less bad and this one is least. No, but God forgives them all. They all sin to him. He forgives them all. And Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth, in, in the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 to 11, he says, some, such were some of you when he's talking to them. What is he saying? He's saying, you guys have all done sins of some sort. So you guys can't think yourselves better than or greater than other people who are involved in these things right now. We've all been forgiven much. We're all required to love much. And yeah, those who've been forgiven much, love much. Now, I want to read you something because I think that um, it will bless you. Can I do that? Okay. You see, sometimes I think in this whole discussion on forgiveness and receiving forgiveness from God and forgiving ourselves and forgiving other people and understanding that how, how God is, um, 
We can become offended at God when he doesn't do what we think he should have done. And we can forgive ourselves and forgive other people and receive forgiveness from God, but we can walk through life holding unforgiveness toward God because he didn't answer our prayer or he didn't heal this person or he didn't do that or he didn't do what we think he should have done. And we actually think that we know how God should behave and how we should answer our prayers and how we should operate in our lives. And when he doesn't, we become offended. And, and this, is a, this is basically about that. Um, it's taken from, some of you will have read it or listened to it, it's taken from a book by Mark Buchanan, Spiritual Rhythms. And it's talking about John the Baptist. And I'm going to read it because he writes so beautifully. You won't fall asleep if I read, will you? Okay. It's how John the Baptist must have felt. He languished in Herod's prison, the cost of meddling in the king's personal life, daring to denounce his brazen immortality. Immorality, sorry. <laughs> Herod's pride and anger and despotic power converged and he imprisoned John. But then he froze in indecision. He hated John, but also feared him. Feared his holiness, his boldness, his wildness. Herod, for all his pagan ways, nursed a deep dread that John might be right, that the wrath of God would befall him, or that the people would overthrow him, which might be the same thing. And of course, following in the line of all the Herods, he was paranoid, superstitious, egotistical, insecure, and together that concocted a potent brew of self-doubt. From prison, John hears of Jesus' comings and goings, his preaching, his miracles. This is the same Jesus whose mother's voice caused John to leap in his own mother's womb. This is the same Jesus whose sandals John felt unworthy to untie. The same Jesus he declared the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The same Jesus about whom John remarked, he must increase and I must decrease. And this is the same Jesus who declared John to be great in the kingdom of God. But now... John's not so sure. All these bold declarations seem a stretch. If all these things be true, why is he here, in prison, rotting and starving? Why does his life hang by a thread held in the hand of a vain and capricious king? If Jesus is the Christ, why is he not coming to the rescue, swooping down in retribution on Rome and all her lackeys? Surely for the sake of his kingdom, Jesus will act. And if not for the sake of his kingdom, then for the sake of John's Elijah-like status as the Messiah's forerunner. And if not for John's status, then for the sake of Jesus' relationship with him. They're cousins, after all. This is a family matter. So he waits, and his waiting turns to wondering, and his wondering to worrying, and his worrying to open doubt. He hears about all that Jesus is doing, the astonishing miracles, the people proclaim him as the great prophet, but something sits askew for John. Something doesn't add up. So he dispatches two of his disciples to ask Jesus a pointed question. Are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? Luke's commentary and Jesus' reply are cold comfort. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back, report to John what you have seen and heard. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the le um, le lepers have leprosy cleansed, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What is Jesus saying? In effect, John, I'm busy. I'm busy being the Messiah, healing, liberating, raising the dead, preaching good news. But if you're, offering, if you're asking what this means for you, well, I've got some hard news. I'm not dropping by. Herod will have his way with you. Blessed are you if you don't fall away on account of me. If my performing miracles left and right with nary a one for you doesn't drive you into unbelief. Blessed are you if I leave you in the dark and you still trust me. With that, Jesus sends John's disciples back to him and turns to the crowd and makes these remarks. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes indulge in luxury on palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
I don't think John's, uh, Jesus' remarks are unrelated to the message he sent to John. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who deserves God's favor? To whom does Jesus, by virtue of their faithfulness or status or kinship with him, owe a miracle? Maybe John the Baptist, maybe the sons of Korah, as though their closeness with God entitled them to full heavenly benefits. So John's surprised to find himself in this prison, in this winter, lonely and afraid, abandoned, while his own cousin saves and blesses and cures every beggar and whore and tax collector he comes across, bestows divine favor on every wayward stranger he meets, yet John sits in the dark, waiting, dreading, brooding. He hears the heavy footfall of the dungeon keeper approaching. He hears the clink and thud of the key in the lock. He knows in his bones what he's come for. It's not to deliver a pardon. It's not to announce a visitor. It's not to herald a miracle. Darkness is his closest friend. What is he saying? What is he talking about? He's talking about being offended with God. When you look at your situation and you say, but Lord, I deserve more than this. So-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, this is what you've done for them and I've done much more than they've done and they've hardly done anything and why haven't you answered my prayer and why haven't you come through for me and look at me, I'm still waiting and I don't hear you. I'm not hearing what you're saying. I don't see the fruit of my labor, Lord. It's not fair and we get offended with God just like John. You see that in that story, just like John. But even in that place, Jesus says to him, blessed are you, if I, if, this is Mark's paraphrase, blessed are you if I leave you in the dark and you still trust me. You still trust 